I'm so glad you've made it to East City Wesleyan's podcast uh, page. Uh, my name's Brett Jones. I'm the lead pastor here at East City Wesleyan. Uh, if you would like to find out anything more about uh, who we are and uh, how we're trying to learn to grow closer to God and serve our community, uh, you'd be welcome to get in touch with us at the contact details on the page. Uh, we'd love to hear from you and, and see how we can serve you. So in the 2010s, a woman was put in prison and on death row in Atlanta, Georgia for having her husband killed. She then, while in prison, sent a letter to Jürgen Moltmann, a systematic theologian in Germany who was retired at the time in his 80s, saying that she was actually undergoing a theological education and she was interested in theology and she had read some of his books and she was really intrigued. And she basically sent through her essays that she was writing and Moltmann was so um, impressed by the essays and so moved by her willingness just to learn more um, in her state in prison that he continued correspondence with her on and off throughout the years of her completing her Master's of Theology while in prison. He spent significant hours actually being her formal supervisor, helping her, guiding her all the way across the Atlantic Ocean while she was in Georgia and he was in Germany as a retired theologian. He actually invested so much time into her that he was willing, at a very old age, despite how much uh, travel insurance cost at the time, to travel from Germany all the way to Atlanta to go to the prison to actually speak at her graduation while in prison and to give her her master's uh, diploma. A week later, she was killed by the state because of the death penalty. Love and grace that doesn't make sense. Love and grace that doesn't make sense. When I heard this story, I heard it literally six days ago, I was like, I need to put that one in the sermon. It encapsulates perfectly what I want to talk today about. Because this theologian, he is accomplished, arguably one of the greatest German theologians of the 20th century, retired and he could have invested so much of his time and effort anywhere else, let alone investing that much time and effort into somebody who he knew was going to die at some point because of what she had done in the past. But that didn't matter to him. And when I heard that story that a friend told me for the first time this week, I was like, wow, that love and grace that was given to that person doesn't make sense. Well, it makes sense from one perspective, but it doesn't really make sense from a whole other perspective. The perspective where it doesn't make sense, I think, and I would argue, is our secular worldview perspective, especially this productivity, progress, moving forward, pushing the needle ahead, only do things that make sense according to outputs and outcomes and resource management and doing the right things. You've only got so much time on earth, so you might as well do the things that matter the most. Within that worldview, this makes no sense. Why would you put so much time and effort and money traveling there? I, my, you know, we tried a while back to see what it would look like for my grandfather to go to Mexico from Canada. The travel insurance was ridiculous. I can't imagine what him at the age of 88 had to spend to get to Georgia. But it didn't matter. He was going to do it because he had a different perspective. He saw that doing and being love and grace in a particular worldview, in a particular 
context and from a particular perspective makes complete sense. It makes complete sense within a kingdom of God, Jesus as you follow him, being a disciple of him perspective. It makes complete sense. You see, everyone is a disciple of someone or something. You've heard me say this before. Everyone is a disciple of someone or something, regardless of whether you actually know it or not. We have this human tendency to want to follow a philosophy, follow an ideology, or follow a person, and every single person does this. Even those who lead nations, even the emperor of Rome in the first century, when the early church was starting, was following something. He was following his worldview and his ideology, and that was discipling him and forming him into the person he was. And every single one of us is the same way. And if I'm being completely honest, I would say that we are formed greatly by our contrasting worldview of the kingdom of God in contrast to the secular worldview that you don't have to name in our society. It's just, it's implicit everywhere. So I'm going to define this a little bit further, what I mean by secular worldview. A secular worldview where there's this implicit division between public and private life, where anything that you do, christian e ought to be done in your private life, ought to be done either at church or within your small group or within the privacy of your own home. But don't dare put that anywhere else in society because this is a secular space. And because of this, we, we compartmentalize our discipleship. And what I think this ultimately does is it, it impacts our actions on how we actually live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus in our every single day, day-to-day life. So when we're at church, yeah, it's easy to be loving and extend grace and have mercy within the confines of our private spirituality and our private religion and private Christianity. But when we put that out into the secular worldview, into the marketplace, into uh, school, into any other context that you can think of, it doesn't always make sense because the rules of the game over there don't seem to match the rules of the game over here. Does that kind of make sense a little bit? Where it's, I want to be somebody who embodies love and grace even to the point where it doesn't make sense. And it makes sense over here a little bit. I would argue that we've been formed from here, over here a bit too much. But it certainly doesn't make sense over here. It doesn't make sense in a secular worldview. But I know that if I'm going to be a disciple of Jesus and to be called to his high standard of following him and not just following him, but attempting to actually do what he would do if he were living my life now, then I need to be a Christian like I am here, all the way over here, that I need to embody love and grace, even to the point where it doesn't make sense because the rules of the game are different from here to here. This, there should not be a divide. But we live in this world where there's this implicit divide. And because of that, I think we're formed by that. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Oh, my goodness, Joey. Another sermon series on discipleship. I've been in church for, I don't know, I'm not going to look at people and say decades, but I've been in church for a very long time. Why are we talking about discipleship again? I already, I've listened to so many different perspectives, so many different things. 
Okay, here's the answer, right? It's because, one, it matters, but two, we hope that in, in every single, maybe, uh, year or, or decade that goes by, that there's a, a, a fresh perspective that can be put on it, because the context that we live in changes, therefore we need to think about the same things we thought about before, but in a different light, and our world has changed. So it's important to have this conversation over and over again, just like we did last Sunday around the values of ECW and the last four Sundays. Yeah, we know the values. Well, one, maybe some of us didn't know the values. Uh, but another is, it's important because these are foundational things that matter a lot. Therefore, we ought to talk about them a lot. And discipleship matters because Jesus has called us to it. And it matters so much, we ought to talk about it a lot. So, if you're like, oh, I'm already going to tune out, this discipleship word is used, I would encourage you not to, and I would encourage you to think of it maybe with a fresh perspective within your fresh context that you're in. But I think the Apostle Paul has a lot to say within this Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. So, I'll just read this again for us. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what, Paul's, what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Yes, some people are like, I follow the will of Paul. Uh, no, follow the will of God. Paul's pointing. Anyway, we won't get too complicated into that. So, this, I've picked this passage on purpose. Yes, we talked about this passage last Sunday, but it fits so well with the beginning of this series. Why not do two Sundays in a row? Here we go. So within the book of Romans, I've spent a significant amount of time reading, like studying, researching, and, and reading through the book of Romans. And this, is, this passage right here is Paul's beginning of his application for the entire book. All right, so what he's done is in chapter 1 through chapter 11... He set a massive argument, a massive argument that is all in the background. So when he says, therefore, he's not thinking, therefore, is in the last sentence. He's thinking, therefore, is in the, everything he literally just said. Boom. This is what we ought to do. So think of it like this. Paul said an argument saying that Jews and Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and Jewish people, the Jews were given the promises of God long ago and were given this covenant that they were able to live in and under, they are actually in the same place because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is without exception. In fact, nobody is without exception that the point that we all enter into this new covenant, we enter into it in the exact same way, in the exact same manner. We enter into it purely through faith. And it's by the grace of God that we are able to actually have relationship with God, not just for the Jews, but also for every single person. But the real reason why we're all in the same playing field and we're all equal, and we all enter into the kingdom of God equally, is because we are all once in Adam. We are all once living according to the family of Adam. But Christ has come and not only reversed all that Adam did, but embodied what it really meant to be human in the first place. He was obedient even to the point of the cross, where Adam did that one thing, you know, with that tree and ate that fruit and everybody sinned as a result. 
Jesus, in front of that tree, was obedient to the point of death. And then he rose again, and he invites all of us into this new life, where Paul is saying to the Romans, you have a decision to make. You can either be in Adam still, or choose to be in Christ through faith. And what we see now is Paul in chapter 12 saying, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He wants you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind because there's this renewing that has happened. You are no longer thinking the way Adam, I'm going to put Adam as like humanity, thought. You're now thinking the way Jesus thinks. You're not a part of his family. You're a part of God's family. Therefore, we ought to act and think in a completely different manner because of it. This is why the renewing of your mind is so important. Hence, the series that we're in, Rewired. We're in a series talking about not just really the mind, but it's helpful within this passage. We're talking about the whole person. And we're, we're asking the question, what does it look like to actually have ourselves changed to the point that we can begin to actually outwork what it looks like to be disciples of Jesus? And I'm not making that statement to say we aren't there or people aren't there. That's not the case. I think anybody who begins that journey with Jesus is there. It's just every single step of the way, God is inviting you into more and more. So how can I accept that more and more that God's inviting me into? And this is the process of discipleship. And in the first century, Paul is saying, have your minds renewed or transformed because he knows the context. He knows the situation. The context is that there is this first century pagan world where the emperor, Caesar, is worshipped like a god, that there are different temples all over the Roman Empire that are physical manifestations of a completely different worldview to a Christian worldview, where people go to the temple and not only make sacrifices to the gods, but also there's some acts that are completely divisive within the family unit, whether you go to the temple for fertility reasons, I won't get into too much more detail than that. And, and Paul's saying, your minds need to be renewed because the contrast is so great. The contrast between the way that the, what God is calling us into is so great that I need to call you into something even though you've already stepped into it. That the temptation to look back on the old way of living, on the inadamness that you had come from, is so strong and so powerful. And I would argue it's the same for us today. That we live in a world where the contrast, I think, is, is obvious, but I think it's a bit more subversive, in a sense. Where, where because we, the society that we live in is, I would say, like kind of Christian, I would make that argument because there's some basic Christian principles that people within society actually do hold, where the weak ought to be propped up, and that those who are marginalized should actually be given support and help, hence we have a social security system within, you know, all these different things, that people ought to be judged and be given a fair trial, that's a very Christian idea, that they're not just judged by the mob, which is an ancient idea, that due process matters, benefit of the doubt matters, all these different things are Christian ideas. But because of this, Within the secular worldview that we live in, 
there's some assumptions that are made that really aren't tested and aren't really um, questioned all that openly. Um, some assumptions, for example, like I said earlier, where potentially this whole Christian thing needs to be pushed to the side and that to be a proper citizen in the world is actually to be aligned with what society at large deems as the good as opposed to what your personal faith deems as the good. Sure, do your Jesus Christianity stuff on your own time, but when you enter into society, play by our rules. Don't play by your rules. That's, I think, is the implicit assumption within, and there's a whole lot more that can go from that. So this brings me back to love and grace. How do we become people of love and grace to the point where it doesn't make sense to the world that we're in contrast to? And when I say the world, I don't mean like the world's bad. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only. You know, there's this whole, God loves the world, but the world needs to be redeemed. There's a contrast, there's a difference. So how do we embody this love and grace and actually do this boldly in such a way? And I mentioned earlier, it's, it's discipleship specifically. But it's not just discipleship specifically. Uh, broadly, it's, um, it depends on what you do. So I was listening to a, a podcast um, a few weeks ago, and this guy, Mark Sayers, uh, came up with this phrase. I don't know if he came up with it, but he mentioned it and didn't cite it, so I figured it was his. Um, that was discipleship minutes. And I hadn't thought about it like this before. Discipleship minutes, okay. And he, he used an analogy like this, but I'll use my own analogy. So imagine you're a professional ice hockey player. <laughs> How did you become a professional ice hockey player? How did you get to the point where you were the best of the best and that you excelled so much that you're on the best team of, in the best league of the world? It's because you were able to participate in games that were highly stressful, important, and you were able to participate in moments in the game that formed you greater than other moments in the game. So I'll give you an example. If you were an ice hockey player, and then switch whatever game you want that best fits you. If you want to say rugby, it works just fine, all right? Cricket, I don't know how to make that analogy. I don't know the rules enough. Um, but we'll stick with rugby or ice hockey, all right? Ball, puck, there we go. Goal, end, you know, same kind of principles. If you were just skating around the ice or running around the field, around the ball or around the puck, and you weren't actually engaging with it, that would be like a low-stress kind of discipleship moment for that sport. But if you actually have the puck on your stick or you have the ball in your hands, the people are coming at you, and you're needing to weave through them and get to the goal or get to the end and make a try or score a goal, that is a high-stress discipleship moment or minute, if you will. So the more of these moments you clock the more you are formed in such a way that you have a greater probability of becoming a professional athlete in that given sport. And this makes sense. Obviously, the person who's sitting on the bench is not going to be formed in the same way as that person who has the ball all the time at a young age, weaving through the field and weaving through all the players. So let's translate this to discipleship to Jesus. Not all things we do 
within this, this Christian life are created equal. They're not all created equal. So attending here on a Sunday morning is important. I would argue it is very important, not just for that one Sunday, but to have a life rhythm of attending church on a Sunday morning is important, and I won't go into the details of why. However, there's moments within the Sunday morning, I think, are more important than the Sunday morning itself, if I can make this argument. If attending church on a Sunday morning is like you're running around the ball, maybe um, having the boldness to come up to the front to pray with somebody might be carrying the ball. Maybe if the music is playing and like the worship team is playing and, and walking around the ball is just passively receiving you know, what's happening, well then carrying the ball might be actively participating in what's happening. This can be uh, even extended outside of the church. Let's say you're at work and somebody, for some, whatever reason, has identified you as a trusted colleague who they divulge information about their personal lives to you and they're going through something difficult or whether this is at school. Maybe a passive discipleship moment would be, well, I, I care a lot about you, I love you, I, I know this is tough, but you can get through this. Maybe a discipleship, a specific, you know, stressful discipleship moment might be, well, can I pray for you right now in this situation? Um, maybe one step farther than that, if the opportunity invites itself, might be, well, I deal with difficult things like this because of my relationship with Jesus. That might be just one, you know, just one more stressful moment. I use the word stressful not in a way of like, you should avoid stress. No. The reason why things are the way they are, let's say in a construction world, and maybe steel is so strong, is because it's been put under a lot of stress and heat. And because of that, it is now a strong structure. And we are actually the same way. The more we are pushed outside of our comfort zone and we do some of these discipleship minutes or moments, the more we clock, I would argue, the stronger that we become. Because what we thought was scary or a bit outside of our comfort zone one year, say we do those things, then this becomes the norm. And then all of a sudden, something else is a bit scarier that Jesus might be calling us into. And then say we actually obey him and do those things, then we become a bit stronger in this discipleship sense. Does this, is this making sense? Yeah. yeah. So the argument would be, within this whole uh, renewing of our minds and actually engaging within this thing we call the gospel and discipleship to Jesus, what are the things that God is actually calling you to begin to do is really the question that we're asking in this series. And we're going to present a few. We're going to present spiritual disciplines. We're going to present community. And we're going to present um, mission. And those will be the three. And so what within those might be outside that comfort zone apply a little bit of stress to your life in a good way so you're, you're actively engaged in what these important minutes are. Because I would say that, to be completely honest, you can attend church um, for decades and not actually engage in the things that really matter. Yeah. But by engaging in the things that really matter, 
the things that push you, you're being formed and changed, not because of you, but because of the grace that God has given you, because he's called you into these different areas of obedience. And to say that you're not doing something that someone else is doing is not the right way to look at it. What is God calling you to do that you think is outside of what you think you can do, but you feel like God's pushing you towards that, is really what I'm asking. And the reason why this matters is because of that first story. I want to be somebody who embodies love and grace that just doesn't make sense, to be completely honest. When I heard that story, I was like, man, you know what? I I would not have done that. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have spent the twilight years of my life, 88 years old at the time. He's 96 now, crazy. I wouldn't have done that. There would have been better ways to spend my time. But that's why loving grace doesn't make sense sometimes. What is God calling you towards in order for you to be that kind of person that embodies love and grace in such a way that sometimes it doesn't make sense? And the world outside will be like, that's stupid. It takes actual transformation to move you on that journey. You don't just passively passively become somebody who's able to do that. I would say it's not not a coincidence that uh, Jürgen Moltzmann, at the age of 88, you know, made that decision. He lived a whole life. And actually, I read a little bit about his uh, bio, and he was drafted into World War II on the German side at the age of 16 in 1944. He was not a Christian at the time, you know, fully into the indoctrination of the Nazi party. And, you know, they quickly lost the war at the time. You could tell they were drafting 16-year-olds into the war. They felt like they were losing in 1944. And so he was a prisoner of war for four years. Even after the war, he went to the UK, not of his own accord, um, to help rebuild England again as a German soldier, interestingly enough. And there he got his hands on um, some books, some theological books that he had never read before. And it gave him a whole different perspective because he had this shame and this guilt. And he knew what was happening in the concentration camps and he turned a blind eye. He knew what was happening in society and turned a blind eye. And he, he had a moment where he was like, this is not the way anyone should live. There's got to be another way. And so he found Jesus, or he would argue Jesus found him in that moment, and it set his life on a whole different trajectory. And then he went through an academic route, and he wrote books on pain and suffering and how Jesus is actually within us and with us in our pain and our suffering. Yeah, still alive today. It's 96. Crazy story. And I would like to say that it was that experience of his early life, that eventually in the end of his life, or near the end of his life, helped him make that decision of, you know what, those who society sees as absolutely worthless and sent to death, there's actually something that God might want to do within them, and how can I participate in that? So yes, that kind of love and grace makes no sense from one perspective, but it makes complete sense from a whole different perspective from looking at it from God's perspective, to have our minds transformed and renewed in such a way that we see the world completely differently. So within that, what does that look like in in your world, you know, in your lives, in your day-to-day? I can't help but think of, of moments where you might be at school and your friends might be thinking, um, we don't like this person anymore for X, Y, and Z reason you know what, we're not going to talk to them. We're going to ostracize them. 
So the love and grace that doesn't make sense in that moment might actually be to go against what your friends want to do and to actually still have a conversation and engage with that person on a human-to-human -human level. You know what, that kind of stuff happens at school, if you've been at school. Fair enough. Or maybe it's at work where somebody is disrespecting you and they are lower on the hierarchy of, you know, org chart at work. And they're disrespecting you constantly. Maybe the love and grace in that context is still extending respect and love to them, despite that you could probably get away with saying a few things and they wouldn't cost you anything. So what does it look like? What does that kind of costly love and grace look like for you? Um, we're gonna, I'll invite the team up, I guess, at this point. Um, we'll have an invitation. I don't really know what this invitation's gonna look like. I don't know how God's speaking to you um, in your heart right now. Um, but I would, I think there's two categories of people, maybe. I think one category is like, yes, Joey, I, I, want, I want that love and grace. You know, I, I want to kind of, as, as a moment, just, you know, come forward and maybe pray on your own. Or if you want someone to pray with you, maybe just raise your hand and someone will come and pray with you. Um, I want that love and grace, but I don't feel like it's there. And, and I want this to be a moment like, yes, I'm, I'm choosing to live my life in such a way that I'm really engaging with this discipleship process of being with Jesus. And that's great. And then feel free to come to the front if you want. But I think there's a lot of us, and, and sometimes including myself, who who don't even want that. Who are like, that love and grace makes no sense at all. And to be honest, I don't even want that. But I want to want it. But I don't feel like I want it. Then it's, you know, the front's open for you as well. If, if you want that to be a moment of like, Lord, where I am at right now is I don't want it, but I want to want it, if you know what I mean. So this invitation is open uh, for you at the front, and then Lee's going to come uh, for an engaging prayer time to kind of close this time off. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for... Thank you for calling us. You're the one who found us. You're the one who's come after us and brought us into relationship with you. Lord, we know that um, this discipleship journey is a lifelong journey, and we all feel that we aren't where we should be, and that's a completely normal experience within the Christian life. But Lord, we ask that another normal experience within the Christian life is that you give us grace beyond we can, what we can even imagine. And so, Lord, we just ask for you to pour your grace out today in a special way. Maybe it's for us to um, feel inspired by your Spirit to more fully engage with what it looks like to be your follower and your disciple. And maybe it's just to even want to begin to engage in that process. So, Lord, we pray that as you're working on our hearts and on our minds, that you would administer your grace to us in a way that you know, um, that you know is exactly what we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.